1 Samuel 7, 15 to 8, 22. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. He judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Bathsheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of, of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all these deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also do doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king, uh, asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his grounds, to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flock and, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Thanks, Susie. Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Please help us to understand it now. And Lord, please use it to point us to the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, sometimes you just don't realise how good you've got it. Uh, we saw this in my family recently. 
Each of our kids has certain jobs to get ready for school and to contribute to the family. And they also have some special jobs that they do on Saturday uh, to earn some pocket money. Anyway, these jobs have been the source of much complaining recently. Saturday mornings have been punctuated by groans. One Saturday, one of my girls, and I won't tell you who, one of them said, why do we have to do so many jobs when mum does almost no jobs? (laughs) At this point, I'd had enough of the complaining and I had an idea. Okay, how about we'll talk to mum and maybe you and her can swap jobs one Saturday. She will do your jobs and you can do all of her jobs. Well, let me tell you, everyone was excited about this. She was excited because she thought she was going to have a really cruisy Saturday. And Jess was really excited because she knew she was going to have a really cruisy Saturday. The Saturday rolls around and everything's going pretty well at first. But then it's the afternoon and she's outside hanging up the third load of Saturday washing and there are tears. See, there is so much that mum does. She didn't realise how good she had it. And it's true for us too, isn't it? The grass is always greener on the other side. It's always so easy to see the things that are wrong and miss how good we actually got it. But it's a trap. And that's actually what's happening here in 1 Samuel 8 as well. Remember last week we saw that our God, the God of Israel, is not tame. He's mighty. Mighty to judge those who treat him lightly and mighty to save those who call on him. We saw him act in judgment against his own people and against the Philistines when they treated him lightly. But we also saw him mighty to save his people when they called on him. In fact, mighty to win the victory for them without them even lifting a finger. This mighty God is their king. He leads and rules and rescues his people. But they don't realise how good they've got it. And so this week they come to Samuel and they ask him to give them a king. And by doing so, they're rejecting God's rule. And we're going to see this morning that rejecting God's rule always leads to slavery, suffering and loss. But coming under the good rule of God's king means life. So let's get into it. First we see Israel needing a judge. This term we're in 1 Samuel, remember, and we're seeing God's people Israel longing for a king. At the time Samuel starts, Israel was in a real mess. The end of the book of Judges says that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's horrific. The book of Judges ends in rape, violence, civil war. And during this time there was a cycle God's people would turn away from the Lord and they would do what's right in their own eyes. The Lord would judge them by handing them over to their enemies. They would be occupied and oppressed for years until they cried out to the Lord for rescue. And when they did, he would send a judge. Now, when you hear the word judge, don't just think of a courthouse. A judge was a leader of God's people. 
In God's power, he would lead them in battle and rescue them from their enemies. And while that judge led Israel, there would be peace. And then the judge would die, Israel would turn away, and the cycle would start again, often worse than where they started. And when we get to 1 Samuel 8, it seems like we're still in that cycle. Except it's Samuel, God's prophet, who's judging Israel. He's leading them in battle, he's speaking God's word to them, and he's doing the work of a court kind of judge as well, judging disputes and bringing justice. In fact, just look out for the amount of times that the word judge is repeated here in this passage. Remember, looking for a repetition is a key tool in our Bible toolkit. We've used a lot in Samuel so far. So look in verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places, and then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Samuel is travelling around Israel judging God's people, sharing God's word with them, leading them. And this goes on for years. But by the time we get to chapter 8, Samuel is an old man and something has gone wrong. Verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel does something that hasn't been done before. He tries to make the office of judge a hereditary one. He tries to pass it down to his sons. And before, this was always God's job. God was the true king of Israel. He was the one who rescued them from Egypt. He was the one who fought for his people, the one who set the laws for his people. And he was the one that appointed the judge when the people cried out to him. But Samuel tries to pass it on to his sons. Maybe he's trying to avoid that endless cycle that Israel's been in before. But Samuel's sons are not just. They do not judge faithfully. They take bribes and pervert justice. And the word for justice here is actually a form of the word for judge. They were crooked judges. They don't lead God's people well. And this is a terrible twist of irony, isn't it? Remember, Samuel was a faithful one who was raised in Eli's corrupt house. He was a godly prophet where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless evil men. And now Samuel's own sons are disobedient, unjust men. Not fit to lead God's people. Instead of faithfully speaking God's word to his people and giving them justice, they're taking from them to pervert justice. And this is a serious problem. What are God's people going to do about this? We've seen last week what happens when they take matters into their own hands, when they treat God like a cosmic vending machine that exists to satisfy their desires on their terms. When that happens, they face God's mighty judgment. And we've seen how God steps in to save them when they call on him for help. Have they learnt their lesson? Will they call on God for help? No. Instead, the next thing that we see them do is rejecting the judge. Look in verse 4. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Instead of crying out to God for help, they come to to Samuel with their own solution. Samuel, provide us with a king. Now, the problem isn't that they ask for a king per se. God actually gave provision for this back in Deuteronomy 17. Even before they entered the land, God gave them laws for having a king. He was to be a king chosen by the Lord. He was not to acquire lots of things for himself. Instead, he was meant to write out a copy of God's law. He was meant to be an under-king who served under the Lord, the true king of Israel. But here in 1 Samuel 8, they already have a king. The Lord is the true king of Israel and they are rejecting him. We can see this when we look at the details. First, notice that they ask for a king to judge them. They want a king to be their leader, to lead them in battle, to fight for them, to rescue them, to give them justice. They repeat this request and they spell it out a little clearer down in verse 20. That we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now just think about what we saw in chapter 7 last week. Remember, the people gathered at Mizpah to repent and renew the covenant with the Lord. And the Philistine army sees them as easy pickings and comes and descends on them to destroy them. And rather than take matters into their own hands, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord who is the mighty one, who's just defeated Dagon in his own temple. He's shown it by afflicting the Philistines with tumors. And he shows that he's mighty by saving his people. Before they even lift a hand in battle, there's a sound like mighty thunder and the Philistines are defeated. The Lord judges his people. He is the one who fights their battles for them. But they've forgotten the lesson they learned in chapter 7. They don't realise how good they've got it. They want a human king instead. And not just any human king, they want a king so they can be like all the nations. And there's a terrible irony in this. We just saw last week how the Lord is a God who is not like the God of the nations at all. Dagon, the God of the Philistines, is weak. He's a lifeless hunk of rock. But the Lord is mighty over Dagon and mighty over the Philistines. He's not like the nations at all. And Israel is his special people, a people who've been given God's promises through Abraham, who've been rescued from Egypt, who've been set apart to be a holy people who belong to the unique and holy God. But it seems like they don't want to be God's holy people anymore. They want to be like all the nations. And this is a rejection of God. Look in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. They're rejecting the Lord, but the Lord says this is business as usual. 
They've been rejecting God since he rescued them out of Egypt and they're still rejecting him now. And at its root, this is what sin is. It is a rejection of God's good and rightful rule for a rule of our own making. And this goes a lot further back than Egypt. People have been rejecting God's rule since the very beginning. All the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, when God made a beautiful, good world for his people to live in. And he set Adam and Eve up with everything that they needed. And he even came and he walked with them in the garden. They had unbroken relationship with God. Perfect relationship with each other. A world with no suffering and no pain. But they didn't realise how good they had it. The servant came and enticed them with the opportunity to be like God, knowing good from evil, being able to rule themselves. And so they disobeyed God. They ate from the tree. They rejected God's rule as king so they could rule themselves. And we do this too. See, at its heart, this is what all sin is. It is rejecting God's rightful good rule over us to rule over ourselves. God says not to lie, but if I decide that it's better to tell some little white lies to make myself look good, I'm rejecting God's rule as king. God says sex is for marriage, but if I decide I'd rather indulge my lusts, I'm rejecting God's good rule as king. God says not to get drunk with wine, but if I decide that that doesn't really matter, I'm rejecting God's rule as king. But it's not just the bad stuff I do, it's the good stuff I don't do. God says I'm to love my wife and give myself up for her, but if I can't be bothered getting up off the couch to help her with the kids... I'm rejecting God's rule as king. God says we're to make every effort to live at peace with one another. But if I'd rather harbour unforgiveness and anger at my brother in my heart, I'm rejecting God's rule as king. God says I should be generous with what I have. But if I'd rather make my life comfortable than care for others, I'm rejecting God's rule as king. See, this is the root of sin. Deep down, sin is rejecting God's good rule. It is deciding, whether consciously or not, that I would be a better ruler over my life than God. And this is true even when it's dressed up in religious self-righteousness. God says that I'm a sinner and I need grace and forgiveness that can only come through faith in Jesus. But if I decide I can do it myself, thank you very much, I can be a good person on my own, I am rejecting God's rule as king. Even religious, self-righteous rejection of God's rule is still rejection of God's rule. It is still sin. And sin is the default setting for all of us. You don't have to teach your kids to act selfishly and try to rule themselves. We're all born with it. And without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we all continue in it. And as Israel saw next, rejecting God's rule leaves us all facing judgment. Surprisingly, God accepts the requests of his people. He allows them to reject him, but he also warns them about what this will mean. Verse 9, Now then, obey their voice, 
Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Now there's something to notice here before we keep going. We've been looking out for the word judge, which we saw over and over again. But the word ways here is actually a related word. It means judgments or decisions. God is saying, okay, you can have a king to judge you, but let me tell you about the kind of judgments he will bring. Let me tell you what kind of justice you will get from him. And so Samuel lays it out for them. I'm going to read his whole list and see if you can notice what is repeated here as I read. Verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to be to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Did you spot the repetition there? Six times in seven verses. What justice will a king like the nations bring to Israel? He will take. He will take their sons. He will take their daughters. He will take the fruits of their fields. He will take their servants and animals and put them to work. They want a human king because Samuel's sons are taking bribes and perverting justice. But Samuel warns them the king will take much more. And look at the end result. They will be his slaves. Getting a king like the nations will be like undoing the exodus. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, but a king like the nations will make them slaves again. And worse, it will distort their relationship with God, verse 18. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is the consequence of sin. The Lord will hand them over to their sin. They will get exactly what they want and he will not answer when the king turns out to be exactly what God warned them. When they end up as slaves. See, this is the reality of sin. Rejecting God's rule always leads to slavery, suffering and loss. We need to have our eyes open to this. Sin is deceitful, it's tricky, it promises much and too often we can get taken in by its promises. Let me give you some examples. But I wonder if someone could turn on the fans for us first. Thanks, Nick. Sin promises much, but it always disappoints. Porn, it promises escape from your anxieties and the satisfaction of your lustful desires, but it always leaves you wanting and addicted. You need more and more to get the same thrill. 
It robs you in your relationships and leaves you with only guilt and shame. It makes you a slave. Finding your security in money and possessions promises security and safety. But you end up a slave to the mortgage, working longer and longer hours to make ends meet, never able to enjoy what you have with the people you love, not able to take it with you when you go. It leaves you a slave. Gossip seems harmless. Share a little tidbit here and a little bit tidbit there. Your friends seem interested. You have their attention. They're interested in you. But gossip erodes your relationships. What happens? Who knows what your friends are saying about you? And what happens when you run out of gossip? You have to keep it up. It leaves you a slave. This is how all sin works. It promises a lot. It promises us life and satisfaction and security and hope, but it's a lie. Rejecting God's rule and ruling ourselves always leads to slavery. We need to remember this when we're tempted. Whenever we hope, whatever we hope to gain out of sin, it is always a trap. It always leads to slavery. It is never worth it. And Israel is actually a vivid, lived-out picture of this. Rejecting God's rule because they just don't realise how good they've got it. But they go ahead with it anyway. Verse 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. And so God gives them what they want. Verse 22, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. God gives the people what they want. And that's strange, right? Why would he allow them to reject him? Why would he allow them to choose a king like the nations who will take and take and leave them slaves? Well, there is a dignity here to the way that God treats his people. He allows them to reject him and face the consequences. But in the midst of all of this, he's actually working towards something greater. He's showing his people the reality of sin and the costs of rejecting his rule. Over the coming years, they're going to experience it firsthand. But God is also preparing the way for a greater king. A king who's nothing like the nations, nothing like the king who will take and take. Later in Samuel, David is going to be a little glimpse of that. Not a king like the nations, but a king after God's own heart. But even David will take what's not his. He will murder Uriah to take his wife for himself. Even David ends up acting like a king of the nations. But God is preparing the way for an even greater king. This king won't be like the nations. In fact, this coming king will be like no king who's ever been. He will be God's own son, become flesh, dwelling with us. This king won't take and take. He will give. He will give healing to the sick, sight to the blind, hope to the helpless, freedom to those who are slaves to sin. He will give forgiveness to sinners. Ultimately, this king will give his own life so that his enemies can find eternal life through faith in him as the risen victorious king. This coming king won't force others to serve him. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Against the backdrop of 1 Samuel 8, Jesus stands out in stark contrast. 
He is a gentle, gracious king. He is the king who calls to him all who are weary and heavy laden so he can give them rest. He is the king who frees us from slavery to sin so that we can live lives of joy and hope serving God. The king who welcomes little children, who weeps with sinners, who can sympathize with all our weaknesses, who gives us mercy and grace in our need. Jesus shows us what life looks like under God's good rule. And it's not slavery and suffering and loss, it is life. Abundant life. Rich life. It is grace and mercy and forgiveness and assurance and hope for the future and encouragement in the presence. It is life as part of God's people who are made one in Him. Sin will only ever disappoint you. Run to Jesus. Come under his good rule. Maybe you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet. Maybe you're afraid to give up your self-rule and to submit to Jesus as your Lord. Maybe you like your sin too much. Hear me. Living for yourself, rejecting God's rule, will only lead to slavery, suffering and loss. It can't deliver. Turn away from it today. Run to Jesus. He is a gracious and good king who can give you real life. He calls you to follow him, to accept his rule, to simply receive his gift by trusting in him. His rule is good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I urge you, turn to Jesus and trust him today. Come talk to me later if that's you. But if you've already put your faith in Jesus, let this passage show you what sin is really like. Where it really leads. How much it can't satisfy you. As followers of Jesus, we still face temptation, we still struggle with sin, but we aren't slaves to it anymore. We saw that in Romans. So don't go back to it. Don't get sucked in. Don't let sin rule you. Don't flirt with it. Don't muck about with it. Don't think it'll satisfy. Don't look jealously at your non-Christian friends and wish you could live like them. Sin always leads to slavery, suffering and loss. Instead, run to Jesus. When you're tempted, cry out to him for help. You can even be honest with him. Lord, I so want to choose this right now. Help me. And he will give you mercy and grace in your need. Keep turning away from your sin. Keep turning to Jesus. In him is forgiveness and grace and life. My girls didn't realise how good they had it. But they do now, or at least a little bit. And none of them have taken me up on my offer of a swap again. Let this passage leave us like that. Realising the awful reality of sin. Rejecting God's rule always leads to suffering, loss and slavery. But we have something better. We live under the good rule of Jesus, our King. Coming under his rule always leads to life. Let's not accept any substitutes. Instead, let's remember how good we've got it this week. And let's keep turning to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... 
So often, like your people Israel, we reject your rule as our king by turning to sin. And yet sin always disappoints, Lord. It always enslaves us and leads to suffering and loss and death. Forgive us for our foolishness, Lord. Forgive us for rejecting you and living as if we can rule ourselves. Forgive us too for those moments as those who have trust in you and put ourselves under your rule where we go back to living like we're not. Lord God, this week, I pray that you would remind us about the reality of sin, that we would see it for what it is and not get sucked in. And Lord, that we would run to you for help when we're tempted and when we're in need. And we thank you for the sure forgiveness that we have in Jesus, the King who gives us life. In his name we pray. Amen.